Take your Bible, if you would, and join me tonight in the book of Acts, chapter number 20. Acts chapter 20, and then in just a few moments, we'll be in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Acts 20, and Matthew chapter number 7. Well, tonight, we are continuing on with a series that we began now some weeks ago. In fact, I started to review the different topics that we have covered, and they have been varied. And I don't have a list in front of me, but we've covered some pretty diverse topics in a series that we have called, Does It Really Matter? And I suspect that you have probably figured out by now that if we're covering the topic, it does in some way, shape or form matter. But, but maybe not in the way that we've oftentimes assumed. We sometimes assume some kind of relevance to something that maybe has to do with our history, with our own preference and inclination, but, but the things that matter, some things can matter to me and they don't have to matter to you. Some things can matter to you and not to me. And then there are some things that are universally true for all people, all places and all times. So does it matter what we say? Well, yes, it does. Does it matter what we wear? Well, the answer again is yes, that does matter. Does it matter what we listen to? Well, music is moral and it's communicating a, a message. So the answer again is yes, all of these things matter. And tonight we're going to address one of those issues or one of those topics that may be more closely held by some in this room than others. But we're going to ask the question, does it matter? And then we're going to connect it to this little statement and and that is, does it really matter if I am a Baptist? And I'm not trying to be silly and quite frankly, I'm not trying to be controversial. Does it really matter if I am a Baptist? Well, it's a good question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand tonight if, if you would consider yourself to be a Baptist because quite frankly, it's an important title and it's what we are as Campus Church. So Campus Church is a Baptist church. You say, well, it's not called Campus Baptist Church. Well, I would submit this, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be stir controversy, but I think that the Baptist distinctives would be such that would be consistent with what we would say was the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi or the church at Thessalonica, or the church at Corinth, or the church in Jerusalem, or the church at Rome. And I think we could agree on this, that if those things that were held by those churches as important foundational Bible truths are not the same things held by a Baptist, then we should abandon the title Baptist. But if the title Baptist is something that identifies us with those closely held beliefs that were part of the, the early church and retained by the church today, then there are some things that, that at least here at Campus Church, we say we're trying to form some recognition of who are we and why are we that. So when we come to a title or a term, I am going to say this, and again, I know that these things can lead people down a trail or a track that is, is unintended, but I think it needs to be said. The goal of Campus Church is not to make first a person a Baptist. 
In other words, if that's our first goal, then I think that we've abandoned some more fundamental or primary goals. So the first goal of Campus Church would to be make people followers of Jesus Christ and by that his children. Blood-bought, born-again believers. That's the first goal of Campus Church. Okay, so what should be the second goal? Okay, so saved, that's really important. So after a person is saved, then what should be the goal? To make them a Baptist, right? Well, I think that, that there should be something even more important than being a Baptist. And that is, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm born again into his family. Well, what, what could be more important? And, and some, I think, would take this position, but I don't. Some would say, well, what could be more important than being a Baptist? The very thing that would protect what it means to be a Baptist. In other words, if you don't have something that is going to protect the name, then the, the name can actually lead you in all kinds of directions. So what's more important than being a Baptist? Okay, so you're a child of God, you're, you're born again. What's more important than that? You know, many times people say, what are you? Do you know the, the most important thing that a born again believer can be is a Bible believer. I believe the Bible. Do, do you know what really makes, in a sense, a good Baptist is a passion about the Bible? So if I'm passionate about the word of God and I am a careful follower of the same, then I'm going to land in places regarding my theology, my doctrine, my practice that are consistent with the word of God. When I start to think about, you know, Baptists and the variety that are found within Baptist churches, I, I start to connect names to my own heritage. So I just, I started writing down names. Mrs. Ailing. Mrs. Ailing was my kindergarten Sunday school teacher. And when I was a kid, I thought Mrs. Ailing, honestly, when I'm in kindergarten and Mrs. Ailing is my teacher, I thought she was probably 103, okay? Mrs. Ailing, she just was this, this to me as a kindergartner, like this wonderful, beautiful, elderly, kind, knowledgeable, wonderful person. And I started to develop impressions regarding church, Jesus, the Bible. And these thoughts are starting to be formed by a person who took the time to prepare and, and, and instill truths in her own life that she was then instilling in the lives of children. Mrs. Ailing, I'm not going to tell stories about all of these people, but, but Mrs. Kroll, who continued on instilling Bible truths in my Baptist church. Mr. Scow, Mr. Klein, Pastor Williams, Pastor Mills, Pastor Cox, Pastor Shetler, all of these people that I called my pastor. All of these pastors instilling in me a passion for Bible truth that they, I believe, found as more important than any singular title, although they identified with the title because of the, the Bible truths. So it made sense to them. Okay, well, this is, this is what I see in the scripture, and this is what comprises or makes up a person that they identified as a Baptist. I thought about Mrs. McDonald, Grandpa Boomer, all of these people just no, no physical relationship to me, but, but 
man, people that invested into my life in a church that was teaching me Bible truth. Many historians would say that the Baptist church actually began in somewhere in the 1600s. And there would be many that would trace the lineage of the Baptist church back to the same. They'd also say, well, it it birthed out of what's referred to as the Anabaptist movement. Now, we're not really going to do church history tonight. You you can do that in other settings. But the Anabaptists, they're opposed to what we'll actually talk about in a minute, but pedo-baptism or infant baptism. And they're saying, hey, listen, this is not found in Scripture. Where are you coming up with this? So we're opposed to this. But then it was interesting that now we're identifying with the Baptist name because they said, well, well, the, the, the baptism is the step of obedience that actually identifies a person publicly and then adds that person or it's a requirement for being added to the membership, so to speak, of the local church, that now the name Anna, we're opposed to infant baptism, but we certainly do understand the prerequisite of following Christ in what we refer to as believer's baptism. And so again, well, did the Baptist church start in the 1600s? Well, the name Baptist hasn't always been around. You know, we've already said it was the church at Ephesus. It wasn't Ephesus Baptist Church. It was just the church. We're called Campus Church. In, in our documents, we're, we're actually defined as a Baptist, an independent church, but a Baptist church. Okay, so, so, well, well, so did the Baptist church really begin then in the 1600s? And many would say that the Baptist church would be part of a denominational movement that would be broadly defined as the Protestant movement. The Protestant movement. Again, this would be the product of, of the Reformation that happened when, when Luther takes his 95 thesis, nails him on the, the Wittenberg Chapel door at the end of October. So, so they'd say, well, well, the Baptist church was birthed out of the Reformation. And, and I would take issue with that. So I would say, well, we're not really a Protestant church because the protest church was really a statement against the Catholic Church. And I personally believe that the true church, the church of Scripture, the church that was founded by Jesus Christ, of which the gates of hell will not prevail against it, I believe that that church has has existed since its birth and continues to exist to this very day. So it may not have always been called the Baptist church, but I do believe that you could trace a line to the church that's always existed and didn't then come out of the protest against the Catholic church, but but has been a church that has existed since its founding. Your Bibles are open right now to Acts chapter 20, verse number 29. Paul says this. He said, for I know this, That after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He said, okay, I'm giving you a heads up. He said, okay, hey, pay attention, he's saying, because there's something that is going to infiltrate the church. And I'm giving you this heads up because I want you to be aware. I want you to be on guard regarding the potential for these that he calls grievous wolves that are entering into the flock, the sheepfold. And by the way, with one purpose. We we might more broadly define it as the same purpose for which the thief comes, but to steal and to kill and to destroy. So so the Apostle Paul gives a heads up. Um, Jesus does the same. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15, he says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. He said, all right, now listen. In a sense, he's saying, as we read elsewhere in scripture, test, try the spirits. In other words, take the word of God and use that as your measure against all teaching, against all preaching, against all directing. In other words, it is the only rule for your faith and practice. You know, Paul was so committed to the word of God that he helps us understand, listen, if someone comes to you and preaches another doctrine, I don't care, the apostle Paul, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. You hold fast to the written word of God. That is real deep commitment to the established word of God. He said, there's no other gospel. Jesus warns us about this. We're warned other places. There are those that will come and attempt to pervert the gospel. Well, what is, what is the Baptist church about? Well, it really is about some primary foundational fundamental things. You say, well, well, I don't go by the title Baptist. Well, maybe you don't, but you should go by these distinctives that, that I believe are consistent with scripture. And you, you might say, well, I just haven't chosen the title. Okay, well, choose the practice. So let's consider what are some of these things that, that it's trying to protect us from? Well, we mentioned, uh, you know, we mentioned pedo-baptism already. You know, this was the idea that people were baptizing children, saying, okay, let's, let's baptize children. Now, there are different beliefs connected to infant baptism. Some believe that this is a picture of the fact that these children are the elect. And so now we're recognizing that from infancy. Some believe that that's the mark of the entry into the church, even at infancy. And so they're secure because if they're part of the church, then certainly they're part of heaven or at least they're on their, their pathway to heaven. They might have to spend a little bit of time elsewhere, but eventually they're going to make it to heaven. So let's baptize them early. I would challenge you. I don't mean to be unkind about it, and that is the absolute truth. And I'm not trying to even be grandiose or, or cavalier about this, but, but the truth of the matter is it's not found in Scripture. If it's not found in Scripture, where do we, where do we come up with this? Julie and I were in Israel several years ago, and we were at this Jewish institute where they're, they're talking about the reestablishment of the temple. They're talking about all of these different things connected to their heritage and their history. And then they started to talk. They gave this little brief history of the world. And, and they, they talked about, they, somebody said this while they're giving this presentation. And then they opened it up for Q&A. And they said, and, and that was when the creation stone was thrown out. And, and then they just, they mentioned that. And then they start talking on and on. And the creation stone. And they're talking about the creation stone that actually came. And, and that's the, the first place that was created was the Temple Mount. And, and then everything went from there. And, and the Ark of the Covenant was actually placed on the very spot where the creation stone first landed. And everything comes as a result of... And, and so afterwards, I'm kind of like, hey, um, I, have a, I have a... Hello. You know, I have a question. And so, ah, uh, yes, that, that creation stone thing. You know, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. This, I mean, this is the Hebrew Bible, right? I'm not jumping to the New Testament. In, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, the, the, the Pentateuch, you know, the, the, the five, Moses. In the beginning, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form and darkness, you know, um, uh, came upon the face of the earth. And God said, I said, so 
I didn't say all of this. I just said the creation stone. Um, where does that fit in with what the Bible said? And the person giving the presentation, they said, um, well, uh, we get that from our teachers, from our rabbis, from our teachers. And, you know, I just like, wow, it just, it doesn't say that in the Bible. No, but, but we, we compliment, we get that from our teachers. I'm telling you, you're, if you go by what you get from your teachers, what you get from yourself, well, I've just determined or concluded, you, you can go anywhere with that. You, you can come up with a creation stone. And I'm not trying to belittle that. I am just saying you have, you have a more sure word of prophecy. And that's the word of God. Okay, so, so what starts to happen with these ravening wolves? Well, things like baptismal regeneration. This is one of the second century errors that, hey, listen, you have to be baptized to actually get salvation. So, so baptism is a part of salvation. It's just not taught in scripture. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say to be baptized for salvation? If you translate that, if you have the insights to that passage of scripture, it means not that I'm going to be baptized so I can be saved, baptized for salvation. It'd be similar to, um, let's say that, that Dr. Zach robbed a bank. Okay, so he's a bank robber. And so Dr. Zach robbed a bank. Um, and so there's a sign in the post office that says, uh, Dr. Zach, and then a picture of Dr. Zach. And it says, Dr. Zach wanted for bank robbery. Does that mean that someone is looking to rob a bank and they know he can do it? Okay. <laughs> hey, Dr. Zach wanted for bank robbery. If you need a good bank robber, let me tell you who's the guy. Dr. Zach is your man. Dr. Zach wanted for bank robbery. Is that what it means? Or does it mean because of bank robbery? Be baptized. Why? Because of your salvation. Have you been saved? Okay, then, then what's next? Did, 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 did something happen? Did you automatically get this halo that, you know, sprung up upon your salvation so that you, you, oh, hey, you're saved. Do you know what baptism becomes for us? One of those powerful pictures that says, I am part of the family of God. I did personally, privately in my heart something that I want to now publicly declare that Jesus Christ has washed away my sin. I'm picturing the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I'm doing so through my baptism. Well, well what is the church, what is, what is the Baptist church helping us to hold on to well, it's fighting against what we would refer to as the error of baptismal regeneration. You know, the, the other, other things that crept into the church, Constantine was the Roman emperor that actually de declared Christianity to be the state religion. The state religion. All right, everybody, we're all going to practice Christianity. Problem with that is now we have a polluted church. Because the church is supposed to be comprised of those saved believers and those that now personally identify with that local church even by their baptism. Well, no, 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 let's have a state church. No, that's not the plan. The, the church is comprised not of those that the government decrees you're part of the church of. Well, well no, this is something that you are, you are born into by regeneration. 
the, the problems, additional problems started to creep in with wrong views being taught about communion. What we refer to at times as the, the Lord's Supper. So people started to place undue, undue, I don't know, mysticism to the elements. And then this idea of what we call transubstantiation. That as soon as you take that little element, that, that little piece of matzah bread, of unleavened bread, and you partake of that, that actually becomes at that moment, you are partaking of the actual body of Jesus Christ. But Jesus helped us understand that even at the, the time he first observes the Lord's table. When Jesus says, all right, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, this is the picture of my body, which is broken for you. This do in, and what's the next word? This do in, do you know the next word? This do in remembrance. Hey, I want you to picture something. I don't want you to forget this. I want you to remember. So this do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament. It's a new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. But they started to teach transubstantiation, that this actually becomes the literal body of Jesus Christ. This becomes the literal blood of Jesus Christ. And then some understood, well, that's a, that's a bridge too far. I don't know if I can actually take that it becomes because I know, I know what it is. I mean, did, did something actually mystically change? And, and so they had a little problem with that. So then they introduced the idea of consubstantiation. That the body and the blood of Jesus Christ coexisted with the elements. But again, it's just not found in Scripture. Jesus said, by the way, a lot of things to help us understand. He gave us pictures all throughout Scripture, not just things like the Lord's Supper. But Jesus said things like, I am the door. I am the door. To what end is, is he saying literally, I am a door, okay? Or is Jesus helping us understand, okay, this is a picture and I want you to understand that I'm the only means by which you can access Almighty God. You have to come through me, the singular door. So it's not strange for Jesus to leave us pictures, even as it's not strange for him to leave us the picture of the Lord's Supper. We could go on and on with different aspects of the, 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 what Jesus was warning us, what scriptures warned us. There are those that are coming in and they're going to come in in a, in a sneaky fashion, unawares. They're, they're going to come looking like, wow, wow, they're sheep just like us. But he says, no, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So what is it that, that the Baptist believes you know, you know, pastor, you said you're a Baptist, and I am. Again, we're not campus Baptist church. We're just campus church, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. You say, but, but what is it then that campus church believes, or what does a Baptist believe? Well, for, for our sake, there's a little acrostic that's been put together that Baptists have held to for some time. Let's look through. Let's walk through. What does this look like? Well, the first thing that we understand regarding the Baptist distinctives would be, first of all, biblical authority. Biblical authority. The fundamental and distinguishing Baptist doctrine, the one underlining all Baptist doctrine is the Bible, and the Bible alone is our only and all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. Listen, the Bible alone... Okay, this means that when something is introduced that we may have held on to for years and years and years, 
may find its benefit in our practice, in our use, but it could be something that we let go if it's not that which was birthed in and solely connected to scripture. So the Bible, biblical authority. Second Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. We referenced this a few moments ago, but knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If you can't find it in the Bible, it shouldn't be Baptist doctrine. Now, here, here is something that I'll throw out. It can be Baptist practice, but it shouldn't be Baptist doctrine. For example, um, if, you're a, if you're from an older generation, we used to hear things like three to thrive. Okay, do you remember that? Three to thrive. Okay, so what is that? Three to thrive, what does that mean? It means that um, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night is what it means. Three to thrive. And if I hadn't just, you know, said something about this in, in previous messages, I'd said, amen. Okay. But, but is that a real amen deal? Three to thrive. Is that biblical? Three to thrive. Okay. Or is that something that we've found is helpful? Now, we, we practice at a campus church. We have Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Is that the only way to do it? I do believe that the church gathered on the first day of the week, we see that all throughout scripture, that they assembled. And I do believe that the church should assemble. The, the assembly of the saints. I, it, it, it's, it's so connected all throughout scripture, the New Testament. What is it that the church does? We are that called out assembly. I know there are times when we're weary and we're tired and it's like, oh, this is a demanding schedule and I got so much and I get all of that. But you know what the church doesn't get to, to mess with regarding its doctrine? It doesn't get to mess with the gathering of the church on Sunday. Uh, how many times should the church gather on Sunday? Oh, well, you're going to have to figure that out as a church. Now, again, I would submit to you that when you connect yourself, and you should, when you connect yourself with a local church body, I think you should also jump in with the connection to what it is that that church is doing. I think there's some value in that. But what if your church says, okay, our schedule is this, and it's not the same as our schedule here at Campus Church. Okay, where do you, where do you go with that? Well, go to the Word of God. What does the word of God do? Baptists have always held to biblical authority. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 18, Jesus spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Do you know what we're supposed to teach others? what Jesus Christ taught to us. So he's left us a sure word of prophecy. That's what we're to propagate. That's what we're to hold to. And that's what Baptists do, biblical authority. Well, let's go beyond that. And what else does a Baptist hold to? The second thing is what we'd call the autonomy of the local church. The autonomy of the local church. In other words, the, the, the independence of the local church, that we as a local body of believers are, are in a sense a governance unto ourselves. We, we don't look to the head office for our direction, our instruction. We look again to the finality, the authority of scripture. 
Colossians chapter 1 verse number 18 says this. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He, speaking of Jesus Christ. Don't get that wrong. He is the head of the body. That's speaking very directly of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus Christ, might have the preeminence. Okay. The Bible, again, is using really good pictures, good illustrations for us. It's helpful. He, Jesus, is the head. He's, he's the brains of the operation, so to speak. He's the one who gets to have final say in how is this all working itself out? Jesus Christ, the head. What does that make all of us, myself, all of us, what does that make us? That makes us part of the body of Jesus assembled at the church. Listen, one of the things that I think is really special, dynamic about the actual assembling of the assembly is it's, it is one of the, it's the place on earth, the place on earth where a person ought to be able to come into this assembling and actually sense there is something different about being gathered together with these people because I believe that there is something dynamic where Jesus Christ exists in our midst as our head. And we now are the visible body of Jesus Christ, his bride, his body, his church. It's one of the special dynamics of it. Well, well, he's our head, he's our leader. That means we don't have some outside, I don't know, think tank, so to speak, to say this is how you should be doing church. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now listen to what he says to the elders. That is a, a, another terminology for pastor. There's a few terms that are used throughout there. Pastors, elders, bishops, all of these used somewhat interchangeably regarding the office of a pastor. He says, the elders I exhort, who am also an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker of his glory that shall be revealed. Okay, elders, pastors, do this. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, okay, hey, listen, elders, pastors, um, hey, listen, the flock that is among you. Do you know what he doesn't say? He says, okay, hey, some of you are going to have some hierarchy regarding churches and, and the, the authority of the churches. So some of you, you're going to be over this region. You're going to be over. Do you know we never see that when we're talking about direction to pastors? He just says, take the oversight. Okay, lead, feed the flock that is among you. We're not taking time to talk about all the role of the pastor, but we are taking time to understand there is some understood autonomy of the local church. Um, and Paul doesn't do this when he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. He's not saying, hey, listen, uh, make sure that you have the head office uh, notified regarding. He says, no, 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 no. He says, we beseech you, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Over you, by the way, that's another important little distinction. Over you in the Lord. It doesn't mean the pastor should, should run every area of a person's life. 
God ordained actually three spheres of, of authority. He ordained the family as a place of authority. That's one circle of authority. The government he ordained as another circle of authority. And the local church, another circle of authority. And those are, those are distributed in lots of different ways. So authority, the powers that be, are ordained of God. And he says, hey, pastors, listen, don't, don't think that your authority goes all over the place. No, no, no. Hey, help those people that, that you are over in the Lord. A little, a little qualifier to help just re- remind us regarding the autonomy of the local church. Well, we're going we're gonna to start flying through some of these. The priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you know what you have the privilege to do? Man, am I thankful for this. You and I have the privilege to go directly into the throne room and the very presence of Almighty God. And you don't have to go through any other human person other than the man, Christ Jesus. You you do not come to me. You do not go to any of our pastoral staff. You do not go to some human and say, hey, would you go talk to God about this for me? Because you have the ability to go directly into his presence. And by the way, don't ever come to me and say, hey, um, um, pastor, forgive me for I have sinned. You have a person you can go to and say, father, forgive me for I have sinned. And, And we're not that person that you go to. Again, please know by my, by my very makeup, I am not trying to, to poke somebody regarding a belief or a practice, but I am trying to poke us to look at the word of God and say, what does the Bible say? Okay, so what do we have regarding this? Well, we have the priesthood of all believers. I have this Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What else do we have? We've addressed this already, so I won't take much time to talk about it, but we have the two ordinances, the two ordinances. Okay, so, so we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are things that Baptist churches should be um, practicing observing and they do so as oft as they you say well well um, at our church we observe the Lord's table weekly that's fine and I really mean that well at my church we do it uh, monthly wonderful at my church we do it quarterly okay Uh, at my church we we do it twice a year amen you say, well, why is there such a variety for that? Because the Bible says, as oft as ye, as often as you've determined that this is something that as a local body of believers, you're going to do. Well, amen. Are there some good reasons why a church would have a certain schedule? Well, there should be some thought behind that. But that's for that local autonomous body assembly of believers to determine. Two ordinances. And by the way, we believe in immersion for baptism. And we do so again. You say, why do you believe that? Because of what the Bible says. Repeatedly, Jesus, when he came up out of the water. uh, Hey, can I be baptized? Um, What doth hinder me? Well, here, there's much water here. Always in scripture, we get the idea that the practice was the same as the word. The the Greek word baptismo, it means to, to immerse. 
And it means to identify. So we practice baptism in this Baptist church and we do so because of what we see in scripture and that is immersion as a practice. You say, what else does this mean? Well, individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. We don't have as much time to talk about this, but here's an area where I think as Baptists we've really, we've struggled. And I'm going to be honest and transparent about it. Individual soul liberty. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 says this. So then every one of us shall give account of his church to God, right? So then every one of us shall give account of himself. Himself to God. Do you know one of the distinctives of the the Baptist church has been individual soul liberty. Neither the church nor the government nor family nor friends may either make a decision or compel a person to choose their beliefs. This is done by individuals before God. Now isn't it interesting that we should come to a lot of the same conclusions. Individual soul liberty. Yeah, but we think a lot alike. You say, why is that? Because we have a single word. A single word. Okay, now there are areas where you're going to have to make some decisions about yourself. And there are some areas that that decision's already been made regarding yourself. We'll, we'll touch on some of those that that decision's already been made. Even as we go forward with a, a couple more of, does it really matter? Okay, but you know, there are some things that the Baptist church has not really allowed for people to have this individual soul liberty. And pastors like myself, we've stood up and we've said, now let me tell you what you should be doing about this and this and this. Oh, well, well, is that what the word says? Or is that something that you're building as a protection for different areas? Listen, again, time doesn't provide for this, but do you know what standards should be for your life? Standards should never be viewed as equivalent to godliness. And I'm going to say that again. Your standards should never be viewed as the equivalent for godliness. What standards should provide is protection for an environment of godliness. But just because, well, I got a lot more standards than they do, that doesn't mean you're more godly than they are. It it may mean that you've built up some walls of protection so that you can have an environment for godliness, but standards don't make godliness. And sometimes what we've done as Baptists is we've preached standards as godliness and we've trampled on some individual soul liberty. Now, that being said, listen, you can't go to your employer at McDonald's and say, well, here's what you shouldn't do. You should think about this before you go to McDonald's to work. I mean, go buy a Big Mac, but to work, okay. If you go to McDonald's to work, you shouldn't say, hey, I have individual soul liberty and I don't, I don't wear uniforms from McDonald's. And what they're gonna tell you is, well, go find another job, okay. And you'd say, well, well I'm, I'm just not, I'm not gonna work there then. Fine. Can a place have rules? And the answer is absolutely. You should determine before you go, Okay, Ken, is this something that I can, is this a violation of my conscience? Is this doing damage to individual soul liberty? And many times we we haven't honestly answered that question. So a place can have rules, a place can have standards, but a place can never decide with finality that which is left to you alone. Individual soul liberty. Um, Let's look at the next one, saved and baptized membership. We spent a lot of time talking about that. 
Two offices is one of the distinctions of the local church. This is a true statement. If a man desire the office of a bishop, that's 1 Timothy 3.1. And then 1 Timothy 3.13, it goes on and says, for they that have used the office of deacon. We believe there's two offices in the local church, pastor and deacon, and those are the two offices. And then most people, now sometimes people just finish the, the acrostic with that, but there's one more that many would add, and that is separation of church and state separation of church and state you can see when you put all that together that makes what we would refer to as Baptists I have I have been a Redland all my life (laughs) okay I was born a Redland and and that's that's who I am that's that's my name my wife actually took the name she she made a choice and she took the name for which I'm forever grateful it's it's who I am the Redland family, it's, it's anything but perfect. If you looked at my history, if you looked at the history of my family, I mean, go, go through the family tree. And if you look on my dad's side of the, of the family, the Redland line, so to speak, wow, it's, it's, it's iffy at best. You know, the number of times my, my dad's mom was married, man, uh, my dad's mom was married five different times. My dad's dad married, I don't mean to be, you know, shocking with this, but my dad's dad married his stepdaughter. My dad's family, the Redland side of the family, there's a lot in that side of the family that you just look back on and you say, wow, well, there's some challenges there. Um, you know, any name comes with some challenge. Any name. My my hope, I haven't done it perfectly, but my hope is that if a person knows me by name, a good name, rather be chosen than great riches, loving favor than silver and gold. I hope I've done something to, to I don't know, to help the name. The, the most important title you may ever take is, I don't believe Baptist. And I love the name Baptist. And I am one. The most important name you will ever take is child of God. And after that, I'm I'm a Bible believer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's how I would answer the next line. And because, because I am a child of God, and because I am a Bible believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, I am also unashamedly a Baptist because of what a Baptist believes. Does it really matter? It's a good question for anyone to ask. I am a Baptist.